Welcome to Let's Continue the Conversation. Some conversations are inherently difficult to have, especially when they involve race, diversity, and inclusion. I'm Lizzie Morris, and along with my dear friend and co-host, Trisha Broderick, we're here to continue these conversations. We want to see our corporate spaces all over the world be truly inclusive. But for that to happen, everybody needs to be recognized as beautiful in their own right. I am a beautiful person. You are a beautiful person. Let's continue the conversation until the whole world understands this. It starts here, one conversation at a time. Let's connect so that we can collaborate to bring about the necessary change to make our world a beautiful place for all humans. If you are finding yourself motivated and inspired, learning something new, or a fan of the show, let us spread the message together. Help us to do that by screenshotting this episode, add it to your Insta stories and tag us at Let's Continue the Conversations. And on Twitter, tweet away, Let's Continue the Conversations and tag us there. It's time to continue the conversation. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Trisha Broderick. And this is Lizzie Morris. And Lizzie and I have been friends for many years now and colleagues in the Agile community in particular, but I've been very lucky conversations that we had didn't just start in 2020 when a lot of national attention really, really started to take off in terms of race and and dynamics, especially in the workplace. We've been having these conversations for years. And so one day we were sitting on the phone and chit-chatting and Lizzie said, I wish people could hear this, this conversation and just us being willing to kind of explore, to talk about different things. And in my moment, I just went, well, why can't they? And so We are doing this, which is very different than what we kind of do professionally in some ways, like with actual training or workshops along this. This is a little more voyeuristic in that we're going to have a conversation. And we realize that not everybody can have these open conversations. Not everybody has the ability to have these conversations right now. And so we thought if it helps others, we'll share ours. That said, we sometimes forget that we're sharing <laughs> to everybody and, and what that means. This isn't scripted. This is just what comes out and, and what we share with each other as our love and respect for each other. And today, Lizzie, do you want to share who we have as a guest? So we have two guests. We have Stephanie Markler, who is an organization specialist and a PhD. And I love the fact when I see ladies like ourselves that got a doctor in front of them now. Yes, girl power. It's an awesome thing. And I'm going to actually bring her on and let her introduce herself. Hi. Hi, Stephanie. Please tell everybody a little bit about you. Yes. So as you said, um, I am a doctor just recently, actually, in 2020, I finished up my my doctorate. So you're the one person I had a good thing in 2020. <laughs> I, I say that to everyone. I say, you know what? This is my one thing, my light that I can remember from a, a very tough year. My doctorate's in industrial organizational psychology. So that's essentially a psychological theory and principles of human behavior applied specifically to the workplace. So that's the, what that means in short. And I do work in the leadership consulting space. So I've been working at a Chicago-based consulting firm called Vantage for about uh, a decade now. And I spent a lot of times with leaders and teams and organizations, essentially helping them uh, get better from a leadership perspective, from a performance perspective, and in the last couple of years from the perspective of DEI and and trying to build leaders and, and organizations that are more inclusive. And on the side, I 
have a platform called the Female Leaders Edge, where I talk about topics related to diversity, certainly gender diversity, but also racial diversity and intersectionality at work and how we can continue to create spaces where people feel included and like they belong and they can have an impact. So that's something I'm really passionate about. It's very important to me and it's a big part of my story as well. So I'm really looking forward to continuing the conversation today. I met Lizzie through Clubhouse, actually. You know, we were having a conversation related to this and I'm excited to see what unfolds. See, so this is one of our guests. We have Double Sugar. I have another guest. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. So my name's Cheryl Miller. I'm based in the UK, not far away from where Lizzie hailed from. So not far from Birmingham, actually. So my background, I'm an accountant by profession. So I qualified with EY many years ago and worked in the corporate space for some 20 something years with with big companies leading change programs in the finance space. So I've been in corporate for a long time. I transitioned from corporate into coaching. So I now work with typically with women actually that want to to leave corporate and start up their own businesses. Um, So that's what I do. But before I left corporate, I wrote a book about my experiences being the only blank in the room as the book was. So the book's called Smashing Stereotypes, How to Get Ahead When You're the Only Blank in the Room. So I wrote that in 2019. That was kind of my mic drop to, to kind of the world of corporates. But one of the things that came out of that is that since I did the book, I've had a lot of corporates getting in touch with me, asking me to come in and do talks. Um, So I've moved very much more into the the DEI space. So I'm kind of coaching individuals, but still consulting with organisations around, you know, inclusivity and what they can do to to make everybody, um, you know, able to, to kind of show up at work as their best selves. I'm like in awe right now. To both of you. Like, it's just so (laughs) impressive. So impressive. We're here today, and I guess I should kind of do an intro for those of you who don't know me. I'm Lizzie Morris. I'm here as the co-host on Let's Continue the Conversation. And we called it Let's Continue the Conversation. Because as Trish was saying, when we started having the conversation on the phone, and I was like, I'm just frightened that once it gets out of the news, this is no longer anything somebody's talking about. Mm-hmm. Right, it goes back under the rug. So, if we could keep the conversation going to make sure leaders are paying attention, to make sure our corporate space, even when the rest of the world isn't doing anything, we're still actively doing something to make true inclusion a reality. Mm-hmm. So, there's a phrase I use true collaboration because I don't think anybody can collaborate unless they truly connect. And if I'm connecting with you, it means I got to bring my authentic self, whatever that looks like, yeah. whatever the packaging of that is at that point in time, I'm yeah. bringing that to the table and you're respecting it and you're being open to it so we can collaborate, make creativity happen. Mm-hmm. So that's my big kind of ethos. And that's why the show is called Let's Continue the Conversation. Mm-hmm. So today we are going to be talking with this fabulous guess all girl power here it's just so awesome so we're, we're going just as an fy this is how all of our conversations go like it's this is the, I love it. the thing that we're hoping people will do it almost sounds a little bit political when we say reach across the aisles but if you think about old corporate space when everybody was there right you got your mm-hmm. call in that little cubic wall but if you reach across and talk to the person who's there and kind of you know swivel your chair around and go hey and start a conversation yeah. or when you're yeah. grabbing your coffee at the coffee wall mm-hmm so to speak, and just have conversations you haven't had before and taking that courage to say, what's going on with you? Absolutely. It's so important. I'm totally with you, Lizzie, the collaborative thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's so important that in in terms of how we fix this, if if we put it that way, that we do it together. You know, it has to be done together. And that's one of the things that I've certainly taken away, you know, because I know as we, as we came 
out of what was happening last year with all of the protests and everything, it would have been very easy to, you know, because everybody's hurt and angry, to kind of retreat into the space of, right, we're, we're going to regroup, you know, and we're just going to kind of, you know, huddle with with kind of like, like you know, similar individuals and we're going to tackle this. But actually, I'm a big believer in that the fact that we have to do this together, you know, 100% we have to do it together. Yeah. I completely agree. And I saw a lot of that last year, actually, in fact, in in some of the circles that I was in where people weren't sure what to say or how to say it. And then it led to this, a bunch of people being paralyzed, essentially, with not knowing how to move the conversation forward or not being a part of space or conversation like this, where you can openly discuss these topics. And, uh, you know, that was a lot of what I saw last year. And then I saw a lot of this, where people were having, opening up the, the space to have the conversations that we so need to have, right? The only way we move forward, I think, is if we continue to have this sort of collaboration and dialogue, true collaboration or connection, mm-hmm. like you said, Lizzie, so that we can activate empathy and better understand one another, right? Everyone's bringing a different perspective instead of experiences. And the only way we can really move it forward and, and continue to create the world that I know is possible and the corporate spaces that I know are possible is to have conversations like this. Now, there's also action that has to happen, of course, mm-hmm. right? There's there's other things too, but it has to start here. So yeah. I love that you've started this. An interesting thing that, and so I'm fascinated, um, we're not scripted. We don't have a list of questions. We're not interviewers. So I'm literally, (laughs) we're just going with it. One of the things that I'm seeing a lot, and especially like even right now, like it was actually a topic I was going to talk with Lizzie about anyways with this is like the reaction to the cancel culture dynamic. Like I cannot tell you how many, especially white friends and family members that are like, but Trisha, I don't want to be the next Karen. And I'm like, well, here's how you don't be a Karen. You don't double down on your stupidity, right? Like you don't, you, you actually try and have the conversation, learn, be open with it versus going, no, I'm filming you. Like if you're getting filmed, chances are you might not be aware of what you're doing, but something yeah. might be happening. And I think that defensive reaction is so human and, and natural, but it really hurts the conversation. But my problem also is, is, like we're pendulum swinging going, well, everything's canceled. It's like, no, it's accountability. But I don't think because we can have the conversation through that accountability causes people to just react and stuff. So from your perspectives, like when we're continuing the conversation, how do you, where's your line of like accountability and consequence, right? Versus trying to get the learning and not giving permission on accidentally to continue hurtful thing or the inappropriate thing. Yeah. I I mean, where I am on this is we are all on a journey of, of learning and awareness and education. And I, I believe that for everyone, you know, whether you're a Karen or, you know, whether you're a a black woman that's been in a court environment, you know, that's had to struggle with microaggressions and discrimination, we're all on a journey. And I think that, Definitely where you're dealing with individual um, situations, you have to always, I think, look at intent. You know, what is the intent behind something? You know, is somebody you know, still on the journey and desperate to, to learn more and desperate to build bridges and do the right thing? Occasionally they may say or behave in a way which, you know, isn't maybe appropriate. But as long as that conversation can be had, because it's all about conversations, right? And as long as there is an openness and they know that the door is open for the conversation, then I think that's okay. There are obviously going to be situations where, 
you kind of just almost feel that people should know better, if that makes sense, you know. And you kind of come on, really, isn't that obvious? Exactly. <laughs> it's like when you know better, you do better. You know, I think Maya Angelou said that as a yeah. as a phrase. And I think um, you know, because the awareness levels have now been raised. So things like, for example, you know, weaponizing the use of the law, you know, against the black person, you know, all of those things that are now so so out there, it would be surprising for somebody to still you know, behave in certain ways and still think that was acceptable. Um, so I think that I think standards generally have raised in terms of awareness, but individuals are going to be on on different parts of the journey. And so as much as we need to recognise that and maybe give some people the benefit of the doubt at times, I think you also need to recognise that those that, that are on the receiving end may at times be therefore hurt, angry, you know, and react in a certain way because we still haven't really gotten over kind of 2020 and what happened Do you know what I mean yeah I and I I completely agree with you I think I'm a little bit of two minds in this regard on one hand it's very frustrating to me that there's people who still at this point in 2021 are able to ignore what's happening in the world and and some of of what we're what we've seen happen over the last year in particular mm-hmm. in very public ways and then on the other hand I have to keep reminding myself that I've been having these sorts of conversations and involved in spaces where I'm able to learn from others like yourselves for a long, a long time, right? And everybody's at a bit of a different place in their journey. And so I, I think we do have to, in some ways, meet people where they're at, especially those of us who want to continue to have these conversations while also not letting anyone off the hook, which is a really tough balance to strike because... I, I do think cancel culture is a bit of an excuse at times, because if you're being canceled, chances are you did something that deserves some accountability and some consequences. So I, when people you know complain about cancel culture or say that they're not going to have a conversation because they're afraid of being canceled. Well, why is that? I always want to get underneath that, right? Let's, let's unpack this for a moment. That's the psychologist in me, right? What, why are you afraid of cancel culture? Because chances are there's something there that you need to think about or learn about or, get some education around so that you aren't canceled right so that that's the other side of me I think that gets a little more frustrated and impatient with people and still you know I'm willing to try to call people in and say well let's talk about this you know and and if so and so got canceled why what did they do some and sometimes that's the only way that we have to hold people accountable especially people who have huge platforms online and are you know very public and have a lot of influence and impact mm. Sometimes it, you know, it's zero tolerance, right? You do something, well, let, let's hold you accountable. Now, a lot of people that I've seen truly get canceled, you know, online can move forward through it if they take accountability and they come out and they say, here's what I'm learning and take responsibility for whatever it was they did, right? And if you don't, well, that's a problem in and of itself. I like to, um, I don't know the guy's name. I don't, I'm not a country music fan, but like the, there was a country music artist that just had an issue or whatnot. And he was getting quote unquote canceled in the sense of taking off the records and stuff. And I love it because he just came out like, I feel bad. I don't know his name, but he just came out with the, no, it's an appropriate reaction and consequence and like, stop, stop saying I shouldn't like it it's yeah. appropriate I need to learn and I I thought that was super powerful just recently of helping people to not just fear the consequence but to actually realize it's all part of learning is yeah, yeah. an amazing thing and I, I, I guarantee you probably didn't notice you said it right Stephanie when you said call in so normally we say call out 
right? And that's interesting because Carlisle says, I'm pushing you away and the, you, there's no more connection with me. Mm. And I'm right, you're wrong. I'm, you know. Right? Yeah, but call in is saying, I want to bring you closer. So yeah. maybe now I can help you to experience this, help you to understand and help you to unpack why this was harmful, why this painful reaction happened. I thought that was, that's kind of like on me right now, that call in. That's a really different approach. And there's a lot in that language, right? And it's a safer space. It's not a space of rejection. It's still a space of where I'm saying, I want you to sit at this table, but let me teach you how to use this knife and fork. All right. So you don't offend everybody else with your fingers kind of thing. I I love that. Yeah. And I think for me, (laughs) I think that's a very, that's a great way to illustrate it because it's true. Right. And and I think there, for me, there's some indications that help me understand whether I should call someone out or call them in. So I think both are appropriate and both have their place. I'm more likely to call someone in if they are curious willing to ask questions and I'm perceiving that they're open to change and that they care about their impact. Right. I think Cheryl, you said it's, you know, sometimes we have to look at intent and then impact. If someone says, Oh my gosh, my intent was X. I didn't realize that my impact was Y help me understand this. Perfect. I will call you in all day long for the people that aren't willing to have that sort of conversation. I think there are points where we have to call out and set a clear boundary and say, I'm not going to use my energy or my, I'm not going to give you any more because you're not ready to have the conversation or you're not willing to have the conversation. But how does that play out in the workplace? It's a difficult one. But the thing I was going to add to to what Stephanie was saying is that that grace period of, you know, when people are kind of at different levels and learning and maybe saying things that are clumsy, that grace period kind of only lasts for so long, you know, it's, it, it doesn't go on forever because we all have the opportunity to learn, to be educated. You know, there was all the books that were kind of being shared around last year and, and still are. Mm-hmm. So the opportunities are there at the moment for everybody to be educated. And, and I mean, everybody of every race, you know, because I think that, you know, I believe that we as, as black people have got some, some learning to do as well about like internalized, you know, racism and all of that. So the education um, and the window for being educated in a way that means that you won't then continue to offend in the workplace or, you know, perpetuate the microaggressions. That that window is closing. You know, we, we can't be here still in five years time with people still kind of on a journey learning. You know, we, I feel that we're at a tipping point. There's a grace period. It's like get on the bus, do the learning so that we can all move forward. You know, that that's my take on it. Can we dig into that a little bit? Because there is truth to that. And I'll, I'll, I'll own it from my part is, is like, I still say, okay, guys, I still say like, I'm still, my brain, I'm trying to break habits, right? Pronouns are really, really hard for me. And it's more grammar than it is the plural versus the individual. Like it just messes with my mind and, you know, but I'm trying, I'm learning, I'm doing different things. And so like, I a hundred percent agree with that. And also it feels overwhelming. And and I realize that that's a privilege and that it can feel overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am grateful for my Native American friends that that educate me on the indigenous dynamics. I'm grateful for all of these different people that indicate. But I, I do have a sense. And, and I think maybe it's not just as a white female, cisgender female, but just in general, it's like, what else am I going to say that I'm not aware of that's wrong? Right. Like, and it can be a little 
overwhelming is not even the right word. Once you get to a place where you're like, I don't want to hurt people. I want to do better. Then it's actually debilitating in a different sense. I'm not worried about it being overwhelmed. They're like, oh, I've got to learn. It's like, I don't want to hurt anyone. Pulling both of those together is like mm-hmm. calling in and calling out within the workplace. gets extra trickier than just my family member that needs a good talking to, right? Or, or something. And what is that grace period within the workplace? Because although I agree, it's old, like, but I just learned new ableist terms that I did not really, like I say I stand with and I'm like, oh, I did never think about that. And then that's a luxury. But I think that in some cases, that's always going to be the case, right? Like, aren't we always going to be learning and getting more vocal in terms of how that impacts people. So maybe the that was a long-winded thing. I'm trying to find my question. But the question a little bit is, is how do we get to a place in the workplace where we can just have this conversation and the call in and call out conversation yeah. in a way that protects the people that it's harming, but also recognizes that it may be an ongoing conversation, but hopefully at different levels. Well, and it is, right? I I usually tell people this is a lifelong journey you're committing to because there's always going to be something to better understand in terms of another person's Mm -hmm. experience in life, in the workplace, right? We're talking about not just race, gender, sexuality, people who are immigrants that are coming to the States. There's cultural nuance and differences, right? You had mentioned ableism. There's there's just all sorts of things that we all have to unpack here. And it can be overwhelming because of that. There's so much to learn. If everyone can commit just to just doing one thing every day to advance your understanding here, maybe it's you have a conversation like this. Maybe it's you listen to a podcast episode. Maybe it's you take an action and, and donate somewhere and get involved. Maybe you read a couple chapters of a book, right? There's there's a laundry list of things that people can do. And someone said in a, a couple of weeks ago on Clubhouse, we were in a conversation like this and, and someone, and I can't remember this person's name, so I'm sorry, I can't credit them, but they said, everyone has something to add to these conversations and everyone might have something different to add, right? My skill set is different than Cheryl's, different different from both of yours, right? Lizzie has something different to add and so do you, Trisha. So we have to stop comparing ourselves to other people too and saying, well, gosh, I'm not doing as much as this person, so I'm just not going to do anything. Or, you know, there's this sort of like desire or tendency to feel like you have to be perfect to do any work in this space. And you don't. In fact, that's there's no such thing as perfection, right? It's yeah. messy. We're going to open f- mouth, insert foot at some point. And if we're truly committed to doing this sort of work and living this way, then we have to be okay with those moments too, where yeah. we ourselves have to be called out or called in, even if you're doing the work and having conversations like right. this. Trish did that to me earlier. I was talking about something and I said, hey guys. And she's like, so you did it. And I'm like, oh. And, you know, I did that a couple of times earlier on the show. She's like, just call yourself out when you do it. It's like, okay, I need to do that. Because every time it happens, I think about it like, you know, four seconds later. (laughs) Meanwhile, you're continuing that. Yeah. And you're like, and then I remember, you know, this whole thing with the idea of the beautiful human. Because if you look on my LinkedIn profile, you'll see that I've got that. Because when the pronouns and everything started, everybody started changing their LinkedIn, the they, them, she, her, et cetera. I looked at it and I was just like, wow, do we have to do this? Are people being pushed to have to do this, right? Because they're not being respected and cared mm. for, you know, and it, and it really, it turned my inside. Yeah. And I said, you know, in my head, I was like, they're bloody humans. What's the problem? Yeah. <laughs> like, why does anybody have to be discredited in some way? Yeah. Because 
of their choice packaging or transition through packaging because of where they are in their life journey and their human experience. I couldn't understand why it was such an issue for everyone. And that's when I said, you know what? I'm a beautiful human. Your humanity is beautiful and our humanity is beautiful. If everybody can get to when I see you, I see another human like me. It means I give you the grace and it means my intention doesn't stay silent. Yes. Right. Because intention has this funny way of kind of staying in the shadows and you won't know what it is until I've done something and you come at me and I'm like, well, that's not what I intended. Well, you never bloody told me your intention. So how was I supposed to know? Right. And then there's the expectation on the other end of I expected you to be further in your learning. I expected you to be at this level, but you never Mm -hmm. stated that to me. Yeah. So those two things, the intention and the expectation, totally invisible. We've got to find a way in corporate space to articulate those. So all sides, everybody understands. So then I know Nicole said when to give you grace because I know your intention was good. So then I'm calling you in. Yeah. Oh, and you had no bloody intention whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> less. Yeah. So you know what? I'm calling you all the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things I've been doing to with organizations to help create space is, and this is going to sound for some people, it, I'm not going to say it sounds trite, but um, I'm, a, I'm, I love books. Okay, I'm a big, big book lover, and um, and I've been running book clubs for I don't know the best part of ten years. You know, I, I ran a, a women's professional networking organisation, and we started a book club as part of that. So at the start of lockdown um, here in the UK, so almost a year ago now, we started some more virtual book clubs, just connecting, and we were getting people from all over the world, and it was great. And then obviously, um, you know, we had all of the protests and the George Floyd killing and everything over the summer. And we were coming up to Black History Month in the UK. So in the UK, it's October time. And I was doing a lot of reading to kind of make sense of what happened. And I thought, we need to book club this. So I said, right, I'm going to create these book clubs. So, you know, I curated a, a short collection of books and it was books that I felt I needed to read to educate myself and that I thought would be useful for other people. So we read some books about, you know, the Black British experience, you know, race and class in the UK, because obviously class is a massive uh, factor in the UK. And then we read books about unconscious bias and um, racial hierarchies and, you know, some fantastic books. Um, Anything else wanted to be on this book club list? Because now I (laughs) (laughs) It was amazing. And we had some authors come in to do the book clubs and everything. And then what I've done with the book clubs now in 2021, I I felt that I needed to keep the learning experience going. And so now I'm I'm running some book clubs for some organisations. So some organisations have asked me to come in to hold that space for these kinds of conversations. So obviously it encourages the learning and it encourages the conversations, not just in the book club, but when people get back to their desks, you know, did you read that book? And what did you think about that? But this year I've, I've deliberately, you know, gone beyond race. And wouldn't it be great, you know, once we can have conversations beyond race. So, you know, so we have looked at books around, you know, transgender, living with disabilities. We had a fantastic author actually from the UK, um, you know, joined the book club. It was, it was amazing. Francesca, um, can't remember her surname now, but yeah, joined the book club. Um, And then for March, obviously, we're coming into kind of International Women's Day and all of that. So we're doing, you know, more books about gender and about women. But the book that we're finishing with, which is is actually now one of the books that I'm getting most excited about, is a book called The Righteous Mind. And the subtitle is, it's The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Mm. And if ever there was a book to 
start to open people's minds to why people hold different points of view, you know, and it's it's written from a US point of view. So the author, Jonathan Haidt, he's the, I want to say he's the professor of ethics, I think, at NYU. So it's about, you know, why the Democrats can't get on with the Republicans and all of that. So it's fascinating. But I just think really important in terms of us understanding why we come at things from where we do and why we believe the way we do and what it is that causes division and then how we can work to bridge the division, which I think is so important when you're discussing isms, right? You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that's one of the things I, I believe in. It's it's holding those spaces and encouraging conversation. And, and books is just a fantastic way to do that. I love that. I have the the privilege of being able to be one-on-one with leaders across different industries and, and the coaching work that I do. So one of the big ways I try to move the conversation forward is creating space in those conversations for people to tell me what they need to learn or where they're scared to say something or where they're scared to be vulnerable. And then I'm always trying to give people really practical, actionable tools and strategies to utilize that. Because what I often hear people say is they might know what they need to do or they, their awareness might be strengthened because of the events over the last year and, and everything that's been happening in organizations as a result of that. But then they don't know what to do with it, right? Like we have all this information and this knowledge at our fingertips. And to your point, we have so many books and resources now. It's almost gotten to the point of being overwhelming, right? So I'm always trying to help people understand okay, you learned this thing and it was valuable to you and meaningful and it opened your eyes in a new way. Maybe now you have a different lens or perspective that you can use in your leadership role. What are you going to do with it? You know, what, what's the what behind that? What's the how mm-hmm. behind that? What are the actions you're going to take? I found that that really helps people in, at an individual level anyway, figure out how they put this learning to use to create space within now their teams, especially for people who are in leadership roles, they have a lot of impact and influence too, right? So I think the more we can move those conversations forward, that that becomes this sort of like spider web, right? You have this one conversation, but this person is managing a team of eight people, then they have that conversation, then that team of eight has that conversation. And that really starts to move the needle from an organizational context. Well, and I'll add to that and even say there's a lot of risk for leaders. Like I I had to do a mea copa and say, you know, I, conversations I was told were taboo in the workplace. Like you don't talk about these things. And and I did a lot of damage to other leaders as well as myself in, in terms of that. And so it's why I even do like a mini like intro to microaggressions of just like being able to spot them a little bit and see those specific to workplaces. And it's just, and then I point them to experts <laughs> beyond that, because like the dynamic of how many leaders are putting their organizations, their customers, their teams at risk by mm-hmm. not learning these tools and not learning what their role is, because it's not just even the influence, which I 100% agree with. I think legality is coming too for for a lot of leaders in workplaces. If you don't start learning these tools and and kind of like that grace period of like, well, it's okay that you don't know. Like, no, this is becoming as much of an expected topic for me for leaders, especially senior leaders, to understand and and be able to address as any HR related topic or strategizing and other skill sets. I expect leaders to have. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of um, of David Solomon, the Goldman Sachs CEO. And when you think about that, I think it was, was it two or maybe 
I'm going to say two or three years ago when Goldman Sachs came out and said, you know, we are not going to support the VC investment process for any organization that has an an all-male board. They were putting their money where their mouth was in terms of saying, we're not going to stand for a lack of inclusivity that we see in your leadership teams. And so when companies start to feel the pain of that, then they will take action because unfortunately, you know, some people in the C-suite are only motivated by the bonuses and the, you know, and that's, it's when it hits them financially or the company financially, that's when they take action. So, you know, I think Goldman Sachs in, in terms of what they've done there, you know, and obviously there are, there are lots of other organizations, but it's just Goldman Sachs is such a financial powerhouse mm-hmm. and them taking a stand on something like that, you know, organizations will start to, will start to, to shape up. Yeah, I agree. And I think it, what you said, I, I think, is such a good example of trying to match up the reality of the current corporate settings we're working in with aspirationally and ideally where we'd like to go, which can be tough, right? Because the reality is right now that, to your point, sometimes people are only going to take action or do something different if it hits them in the pocketbook because organizations run on capital. And a lot of times we're looking at, especially for public companies, right? It's the bottom line. And are we meeting our shareholder needs? And are we making money? And are we generating revenue? And that often flies against having executives or leaders or companies invest in things like diversity and inclusion or green energy and things that impact the environment, right? There's things that just are sometimes competing priorities for better, for worse. But I think that if we can learn to continue to speak in the language of executives and the people that are making decisions that have a seat at the table and adapt our messaging to speak in a way that resonates with them, that is really helpful, right? I see a lot of people that you know, are continuing to try to have the same conversation over and over again and maybe not getting some traction. And usually my coaching is, if you really care about this and you want to get to this certain outcome, find a way to get to that outcome by changing up your messaging, change up your language, right? Not everyone's going to get on board with this just matters because it's a human issue and we should care about it. That yeah. would be my argument. But I also know that that doesn't hit that in it for them. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. So and that comes down to, we had a comment in from uh, Nicole and yeah. she said, money talks. Uh, one of the things I got a lot that was really pushed when I was doing the DI certification was when you're talking to organizations, you've got to make a business case. You do. Now yeah. we're used as professionals, right? At the levels we've worked at of making business cases for different initiatives, et cetera. But there's a pause that comes in you when you think I got to make a case for Treating caring for flipping humanity, really? I know. Is this case? You don't just see that that's right. But it's true when we're dealing with corporations, right? Because we're talking about these, these monolithic empires, really, right? They've got to see that it makes sense to their pocketbook. And if it doesn't make sense, how is it going to save them down the road? And I think that is where we start talking about the fact that, well, you know, there have been laws in place for many, many years that it could have stung you really hard. The difference is people are very ignorant to them. Today, people are being educated to who they are and what they deserve and what their value is and what each society around the world has put in place to support that. And the different government entities that are there to support it at no cost to the person going and saying, I need help with my organization because they're doing this or that. And I think um, that's going to be 
the language, the articulation around that, that will make executives pause and want to start having conversations. Because what could this really cost us if we don't? And that may need to be the way the conversation starts, right? What if you don't get your bonus next year? Because for 15 years now, you're going to be under investigation and supervised. You're getting sued. Right. You're getting sued. And having supervision because that's the way the law cases are working, right? When it gets tried by these government tribunals that have been set up to protect the sense of race and humanity and equality, not only are you going to be sued, you are also now going to be under watch to make sure you don't do it anymore. That's a lot. Yeah, a lot of uh, science and evidence in the psychology literature, too, that would support that if you can help people see what loss they might avoid by taking an action, they're more motivated to actually do something about it. Versus if you tell them what they could gain, even if it's the same gain or loss, yeah. if you speak in terms of here's what you could lose or here's what might happen if you don't take action on this. Is that fear-based <laughs> motivation though? <laughs> sort of. It's called prospect theory in behavioral economics where people are just more like, if, if I told you, you could do this and make a thousand dollars, but if you do this, you would avoid losing a thousand dollars. People are more motivated to do the thing that's going to help them offset a loss. Yeah than to realize an equal gain. For whatever reason, there's a lot of research behind this that I want to say that again. What's it called again? Because that's that's like rocking my world with certain things right now. It's called prospect theory. And it it was originally founded, I think, by Kahneman and Tversky, who are two behavioral economists. And they have a lot of tricks and heuristics on essentially how do we persuade? How do we persuade people? Mm. What actually makes people pay attention what moves the needle, right? And it can feel a little manipulative, but it's really just the sales process. Like how do you get someone to buy into what you want them to buy into? And it doesn't matter what you care about. It's speaking in their language, right? Um, Nicole said in the comments, you know, what's in it for me? That's how you have to think, right? What's in it for this person? And how can I speak in a language that will resonate with them that they care about, even if that's not the thing I care about, right? Maybe I'm less motivated by making money than the next person. And I care more about moving humanity forward, but that doesn't really matter if the other person that I'm trying to persuade doesn't care about it. So anyway, there's a lot more back there. Just building on that loss, um, Stephanie, I don't know. I don't know how this, whether this has landed yet in the U S but I know here in the UK, people are starting to look at the diversity and inclusion in the supply chain. So when, when contracts are now being put out to tender, you know, organizations are now being asked about their diversity and, their, and inclusion statistics. So there is a real potential that corporations will start to lose business because mm-hmm. they, they haven't got the stats that they need. They haven't got the credentials to say they're taking this seriously. And when, when they do start to lose business, um, you know, again, part of that business case, it will be real. You know, yeah. I've seen I'm seeing a really scary trend. I have a really good friend. She's she heads actually a supply chain. She's like the the VP of the supply chain for a fitness um, supplier. And it's fascinating how many calls she's getting right now. And it's just like they want the statistic of the that black woman head, you know, senior leader mm-hmm. in this organization. Mm-hmm. She's like it's crazy to me how many increased calls she has received where they're not even looking at a resume of like anything she's doing. And and her fear was, I'm like, well, are there any good, you know, like, do you like any of these opportunities? She's like, my problem is, is my fear is that they're calling me to just put me in as a statistic 
and yeah. that I won't have the actual autonomy and the ability to lead in the ways that I want. I 100% agree, but I'm also afraid of how many people will just try and check a box. Yeah. yeah. Are you thinking of token? Is that the yeah, word? Yeah, well, tokenism, yes, but I think it even goes further than tokenism in, in mm. a lot of ways. Um, it goes even further than tokenism for me in the sense that they know that it's hurting them. Yeah, and it's, it's mm. tough because that is, I think, right now the case, right? There are some organizations that don't have an inclusive culture and yet they're still trying to increase their diversity numbers, right? Diversity is just metrics, right? How many people, how many women do you have? How many black women do you have? How many, you know, insert other characteristics. That's diversity. Inclusion is, are you invited to the table? You know, are you actually invited to participate in the conversation? And then belonging is, do you have a voice? Do you feel safe sharing your perspective? Can you bring yourself to work? And we're seeing a lot of organizations, not just in the last year or over the last couple of decades, really, that are just focused on diversity, right? Let's get our numbers where they need to be. Mm-hmm. And then they don't focus on inclusion or belonging or creating safe workspaces for people to actually show up and add value and, and bring their perspective and their lens in its full power. And then that's where we're going to start to see, hopefully, some organizations continue to differentiate themselves in terms of they're focused on diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging, the full spectrum. And guess Mm -hmm. what? People are going to start to go there and they're going to make an impact. And then that's going to start to change the narrative for other organizations. So one thing that I think is a positive from my perspective in terms of just thinking about board seats and boards for organizations, a lot of people sit on boards for multiple organizations. So if we can continue to get more representatives on boards specifically, and I'm going in a bit of a different direction, but I think that's going to be one way to really move the needle because boards have a lot of power. They have influence. They can really provide strong recommendations to the executive leadership team within certain companies. So if we can get more representatives on boards and have truly diverse boards in terms of gender and race and and culture and background, Mm -hmm that's really going to move the needle. And I think especially when people sit on multiple boards and they see, oh, well, company X is is doing this and here's the impact. Then they take that example and story to another board they might sit on and they say the same thing there. So I personally think that's one way to, to continue to move the, the needle in the right direction, right? What we don't want is people checking the box out of fear for losing something, but that might be the reality with some companies. And I think for people that maybe, and maybe that's a stepping stone that's required for some to just even to move, but, yeah, but to, to Cheryl's point, like very small grace period for me, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, very, very small. <laughs> you have to make the decision, right? Am I willing yeah. to, if I get that call, am I willing to go there knowing that I might be a check the box person Am I willing to go in and make some sacrifices and, you know, share my perspective and and move and what's my exit strategy, but am I willing to do that? If the opportunity is good enough, sure, maybe, right? And then, and then you go elsewhere, but that's the, that reality ideal sort of thing again, unfortunately. I I guess that really does pull to where we talk about leadership because for many organizations, although we see the C-suite, there's the board that's above the C-suite. And we don't often refer to the board's directives, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you've got a C-suite that's all about diversity and inclusion, you've got a board that isn't. That right there is going to stop a lot of things happening. Exactly. And then you're going to have those who now have to go back to the board and say, look, if we don't do this, those dividends you were looking to get, you aren't going to get them. And here's what it's going to cost you, board members, if we don't actually now start taking these steps. So we'll probably be going to begin 
in many organizations with what you're talking about, the survival boat. So you are going to give allow us some more time to exist in our industry without anybody socially shaming us and us losing our major, you know, mm. business if we bring you on. But then, like you said, if I go into that organization, I've got to make a conscious choice and say, okay, am I willing to be so-called the sacrificial lamb that's going to trailblaze to make it easier for people who come in who are like me? So when they get here, they can belong. Otherwise, it is, the statistics we can often look at is not just who you bring in the door, it's how many actually stay. Yeah. Well, I have a theory. I was going to say, you know, you, you're absolutely spot on, Lizzie, because diversity without inclusion, it's a negative ROI. You know, that is going to be a negative return. You've just got a revolving door because you'll get people in that are diverse, but they will not stay. You know, they just won't stay in that environment. So you actually end it ends up costing you if you don't do it properly. You've got to create the the inclusive environment. I think that the board structure here in the UK, well, it, it differs depending on the nature of the organization. But here the C-suite tends to be the executive board and then often you have the non-executive boards. But a really good example, actually, that picks up on the point that you're making about the importance of boards. You know, there was the ex-CEO of Credit Suisse, um, Tijan Tiam. So he was, you know, first CEO of like a, you know, kind of major financial institution. And the board that above him, you know, just as you were saying, were not aware at all. Let's just put it like that. I mean, when you read some of the stories, it is horrendous, you know, how they behaved. Um, and he ended up leaving, you know, and at some points in terms of things that happened, he, he was literally close to tears. It was it's terrible, but definitely worth um, worth reading, because I think back to your point, Stephanie, in terms of the importance of those boards at right at that top level, because, you know, th- there's that saying, isn't there? The fish rots from the head. <laughs> so you get it right at the top. It, it, it eventually is going to cascade down. Absolutely. We want to open up questions. Like we've had some great comments that came in and I'm looking and I saw there was a comment by Nash and he was commenting, re-commenting on what Nicole said, what's in it for me. Mm. It's definitely the biggest hurdle for leadership to create a cooperative environment for longevity, sustainability of the organization. I, I loved the idea of what maybe is that formula for the longevity and sustainability so sustaining it so it stays this way now and it gets the opportunity to keep improving and improving because if it doesn't get to that sustainability we're really not going to get much improvement yeah I mean I know that in um in some of the work that I've been doing with organizations there is the you know one of the ways that you get past um you know discrimination and microaggressions and unconscious bias is by exposure to difference you know and it's real exposure and so really for the leaders, and I don't, you know, I know things in the US are quite different, actually, in terms of the UK around levels of integration. And Lizzie, you might remember this from your time. In fact, I think what we actually have in the UK is we have what looks like a more integrated and joined up cohesive society, but actually below the surface, there is still um, you know, there are still those class issues and, you know, there are still spaces that um, certain people aren't welcome. But certainly on the surface, you know, it's a more multicultural, more more kind of mixed um, environment. And that does help in terms of, you know, the exposure to difference that starts to break down some of the barriers. But in terms of the what's in it for me, one of the things that I always say to leaders is the 
authenticity, you know, authentic leadership has been talked about for years. But the reality is a lot of leaders, whether they're, you know, um, black, white, LGBTQ+, um, you know, able-bodied or not, a lot of leaders do not show up at work as their full selves, even when they're white males. You know, we all kind of filter and curate. And I think there is a real, there's a real opportunity right now for leaders to absolutely come to work as themselves. And again, I'm going to use David Solomon as an example. So the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who was outed as a DJ at the weekend and he has board members who didn't want the public to know that he DJs at the weekend because they felt that it, you know, kind of diminished from his position, which is crazy, right? Yeah, makes um, so human people. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and, and you see often, you know, you see in firms like law firms and, you know, within the financial services sector, you know, people do hide who they are, which is a very stressful place to be. So just on a human level, in terms of the what's in it for me, if we could all go into workspaces and just be fully ourselves, um, you know, I think that that in itself drives for a much better, healthier kind of workplace environment. I was having a conversation earlier where we were talking about the definition of professionalism mm. and that what professionalism has meant is that I have a steel door when I walk into the office that blocks out who I am as a human. Mm. And all you're concerned about is what I bring to the role that you hired me for. But everything else, there's a steel door behind it until the clock clicks that I can go back to being a human again and then I, mm. the steel door gets opened and all of me comes back to the space so I think we are actually going to have to work on redefining what professionalism is well I always joke I hate the saying I hate the saying when people quote the it's just business it's not personal I'm like first of all you're quoting a fictional movie second of all you're quoting a mobster fictional movie as a business best practice like stop like stop already but it's so ingrained of like that's our excuse out like that's the that's how it makes me it's almost back to the what's in it for me it makes me feel better to say it's business it's not personal never makes the other person feel better in any of way but like but we're so ingrained with that so i i love that i i think that that's like that's a hot button topic for me i cannot tell you how many people have made that comment to me and i'm like I don't like The Godfather, which immediately makes everyone hate me on top of it. Like, but I don't even like that movie. Like, (laughs) I do think that piece around professionalism is so important because those standards have been set mostly by white men from, Mm -hmm. you know, decades and decades ago. And a lot of those standards for professionalism still are under the surface or unconsciously held up now. And I think sometimes we, We just conform and we look around and we think, okay, what should I wear? How should I behave? What can I say? What can't I say? Mm -hmm. And we do that by watching what other people are doing. But it's rare that we just open up the conversation and we say, well, hold on. What does professionalism mean to us in this culture, in this organization? And what does that mean about what sort of climate we want to create within our country? And I think Mm -hmm. that, and maybe that's taking it full circle, Lizzie, to what you said earlier in the conversation too, around just asking people and letting our preferences be known, letting our intent be known, having conversations about what we're trying to achieve and why and what that means about how people can show up at work. And I think sometimes we just make all sorts of assumptions and we don't question it or we don't ask why or we don't talk about, well, what could be different here? So I hope that those sorts of conversations continue because I think that's a big way that we actually drive sustainability for some of these change efforts is that 
people are talking about these things and they change year to year, yeah. month to month. We, we should always be talking about this, right? It's not that you set a standard now and it's still relevant in 2030. Our world changes really fast. Let's keep yes, it does. It. And we just take a really long time to kind of uh, catch up with it. I was watching Behind the Masks on Marvel because I'm a big cartoony, you know, a Marvel chick all the way, right? And I was, <laughs> I was watching, but listening to the writers behind it. And I had never seen cartoons as so deep, do you know what I mean? And so deeply inspirational. I just hadn't ever looked at them that way. But the writers were always very conscious of the world that was at the point in time that they're writing. And what can they do to help those people who feel like they're having to live dupless lives, like that they can't really be their real self, so they've got a mask on. What can they do to remove the mask for that person so that they can be who they aspire to be all day? So the idea of the X-Men was about removing the mask. I love that was like wow and that's one of my favorites to watch mm. but it was all about saying you are showing up as who you are all day every day yeah so when you use the um phrase which i'm going to use it again i just want you to know that show about filtering and creating ourselves it's so so britishly wonderful <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm absolutely going to use i'm going to use that in my talk tomorrow Right, and I'll give you all the credit for that uh, because that's what we've been talking about that we're doing yeah. Yeah, you know, and I've been, I, I, I expressed last year, I had done that for years. I would never, it wasn't until, literally, uh, we had a conference, an agile conference for our industry, and we had a panel for um, black women, right? And we were talking about what we've been going through, and et cetera, that I would ever have thought about being in the professional zone with twists. I've always worn my hair straight, Right and long or weaved or whatever, but it's always, always done it. My whole career, my branding is like that whole thing, right? Because that's the look. And it was for the first time when I listened to these other black women from different places and their experience, I went, damn, I'm fake. It's like, it was a real slap in my face that I'm thinking I'm being so authentic, but no, I'm being so fake. And I had had little notches on my belt when I've done this, then maybe I'll allow my real hair or maybe I could go after I could cut my hair short when I've achieved this, when I've got this name in the industry, when I'm this, there were all these little steps I had that said, okay, at that point you could, I can show up as who I really am. Unfiltered and uncurated, mm. just busy. Um, and that really helped me. That panel that I sat on, because I sat on those one, please, yeah. right? Really helped me say, you know what? Psh, it made me stop doing this craziness. Yeah. And then and the history behind the hair, you know, the history behind the kinky hair. I mean, it's you could do a whole <laughs> LinkedIn live just about that. And you know, wasn't it? Um, it was earlier. Was it earlier this year? Last year, obviously, that that Google. Um, you know, kind of got into hot water because obviously, you know, you you would Google unprofessional hair, and you know, natural hair would come up. Um, right. Yeah, it, it's really interesting that there's a great piece of work um, called Covering. I'm guessing Stephanie you've probably come across it. It's called Covering, and Deloitte's um, sponsored a piece of work. A guy called Kenji Yoshino. 
the NYU professor, did this work about how we all hide elements of ourselves when we go to work. So it fits in the whole professionalism thing. We all have this view of how we should show up at work. So when we get into work, you know, just as you literally said, we, you know, we take off parts of our culture. We maybe take off the fact that we are mothers. We take off, um, you know, we take off these things because we think we have to show up in a certain way. I'm, I'm actually talk about that we're sick or that we exactly. have night, right? Because, oh my gosh, then it might seem like we're not productive, right? There's exactly. so many not layers needed. here. And I just hope that as a result of us now all working from home, you know, so we can see, you know, we can see into each other's home. I can see, you know, Liz's amazing artwork. You can see that I've got the Brooklyn Bridge behind me because I'm a big, <laughs> big fan of um, of New York when we could travel. And I, I'm hoping, you know, people have realized that actually we can still get work done even when we're not wearing the suits and the heels and the makeup and the weaves and the whatever we can still get the job done so it's like you know please let us not have to go back to where we feel that those external things make so much difference in the work that's done because they really don't you know yeah, this is so I'm beautiful. And I'm so sorry, I have to hop off. I would love to continue the conversation. It was so nice to meet the three of you. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much. So thank you so much, Cheryl, for being here. Really appreciate you hopping no, on. Really. The time difference. Thank you, guys. Now, just because the episode is over, doesn't mean the conversation has to stop. Come find us on Instagram at Let's Continue the Conversation and let us know what you thought of today's episode and what takeaways you're leaving with. And don't forget to help us spread the word. Screenshot the episode, add it to your Insta stories and tag us at Let's Continue the Conversation. You can always find the links and resources mentioned in the show over on Let's Continue the Conversation.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you next time.